This morning, we are in Psalm 133. So if you would go ahead and turn to Psalm 133. We've got one more Psalm of Ascent after this. And then we are going to go through the book of Jonah. Matt is actually going to do four weeks in the book of Jonah. So that's what's going to come up next um, this week, one more week in Psalms, and then we're going to change it up a little bit. So Psalm 133, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his, ro of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Heavenly Father, I ask that your word would do its work in spite of me. I ask that uh, what you intend for this passage to say would be spoken this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So if you want to take a wild guess about what this passage is about, I mean... It's not, you don't have to dig around for it. It's pretty easy. It's right there on top of the ground. It's unity. So this morning, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about some of the intricacies of unity, but specifically biblical unity, gospel unity, unity among Christians. So unity, is it nice or is it necessary? Is it something we work to gain or is it something that's been given to us? Where does it come from? What does it do? What hinders it? Here we're going to look at it in song form. You ever tried to pick, the, pick apart lyrics? You know, there's, there's some of those really old songs. They're like 10 minutes long and nobody understands what the lyrics are. You know, you ever, you ever read through the lyrics of Stairway to Heaven? I mean, it's, it's, it's almost nonsense. But it's like, I, I think this means that. I think this means that. And then you play it backwards and it says something totally different. <laughs> if you know, you know. Um, but here, this is what we've been given in song form. And the way that it is conveyed is, is in this creative form, but it shows us a lot of different aspects in just a few verses. Now, remember, this is a song of ascent. These are songs and psalms that they would have sung on their pilgrimage, their annual pilgrimage to the temple. Now, this one coming here towards the end of the Psalms of Ascent, um, I want you to imagine as they're getting closer and closer from all over Israel, the crowd's getting bigger and bigger as, as they come in there. Now, you can imagine going to a sports event or a concert or to hear a speaker and as you get closer and closer to the venue, you start to see the crowd like, oh, yeah, they're here for this. Now, when you left home, you were kind of a weirdo because you had your team's face paint or your Taylor Swift T-shirt on or the giant foam finger, your favorite NASCAR driver's number shaved into your back hair. That's a thing. And... You know, at that point you were a weirdo and you were, but as soon as you got closer and closer into the venue, you start to identify with the weirdos. And I think that's what's going on here is as they got closer and closer, suddenly the crowd that they were with were all on the same mission. They were all going to the same place. They were united. That's where this Psalm comes in. 
as you go through all of these, then you come to this one. You're like, look at all of us that are, that are headed to the same place for the same purpose, the same direction. You're less out of place because you identify with them. And what, what specifically what they would be united in and what we are united in is our dedication to worship God, is, is a dedication to God. So biblical unity, what is it? Biblical unity, it's a characteristic that marks us as different from the world. As, as God's people, as a group of people who have a common relationship with God. Now this shows up in several different ways. It shows up in a commitment to each other and a commitment to the gospel. Mutual care for each other. Mutual goals and desires among the believing community. But then the, the first thing that unifies us though, the first thing that we have in common is actually pretty humbling. It's not that fancy. The first thing that we are unified in, that the people in this room have in common before anything else, is we're united in our inability to save ourselves from ourselves. So it's the first thing that you have in common with the people around you. We are united in our neediness. Now, church is not a club, but if you wanted to use that framework for an illustration, we would be the the helpless sinners club. So it would be on the sign out front or hypocrites anonymous or hopeless without Christ club. Cause first of all, we're united in our sinfulness. That is the first foundation that we come to. That is our equality. You want equality? That's what our equality is, is absolutely lost apart from Christ. <clears throat> Colossians 1.21 says, and you, talking to the church at Colossae, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So we're united in our equal sinfulness. But what makes the church so different, because you can find that anywhere. What makes the church so different is then we are united in our salvation. We have a common lostness. But then in those who have actually come to Christ, there is a common rescue. Colossians 1, 12 through 14 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So without that common thread of you need Jesus and I do too, this is a very worthless institution. Without that common thing, without the fact that we all know I need Jesus and you do too, then this is just a club. It's not good for anything. It doesn't accomplish biblical unity. Now, I want you to think though for a minute about the seriousness of the relationship, or at least what should be a very serious foundation. Uh, my favorite illustration for salvation is the same as the one I always use. Imagine people drowning in a storm. People are out drowning and dying in a stormy sea, but they're being picked up by the Coast Guard together. They're being rescued. They're being warmed, fed together, and protected together. They were all lost and drowning apart, but then they got pulled together and rescued together. So these people would have things in common that they would not have in common with even their own flesh and blood. They would have an intimate knowledge of what each other went through 
both in being hopelessly lost and that close to certain death, but then they would also know exactly what the joy of salvation would be. So they would, that is the core of what, what they would have in common. They would have that hopelessness of death, but then that joy of being given life again. And they would all know it. They would all know, sitting there on the boat, soaking wet, saying, you just came through what I just came through. And we know what it was like. That is more akin to what Christian unity is than having the same political views, than having the same background, than having anything. It's that. That's the ultimate foundation for Christian, for Christian unity. And the rest of the world will never get to see it unless they too come to understand and see themselves as hopelessly lost apart from Christ. That is the unity that we should have with other Christians. It's not similar taste. It's not that, well, we all like a certain kind of music, so we go to this church. It's not that we all like a certain kind of preaching, so we go to this church. Or we all have the same kind of background, so we run with those people. Or same politics. We're all about the same age. It's different from that. The experience of salvation in Christ is the common ground. And that makes us closer than flesh and blood. Because just like the people on the boat, suddenly you, you are identified with somebody else on a totally different level than you would be with even family. But here, here's the pointed question that I have for you out of that. Are you in a club or are you experiencing unity with others who have found Christ out of lostness? Or is it just a religious club that you kind of feel like you should do? Your answer that, to that question, will it'll reveal the depth or the lack of your walk with Christ, the way that you are united and the way that you fellowship with other Christians. Because unity with other believers is all a part of the package. It is, it is never separate from salvation. In the New Testament, as soon as a church is planted, as soon as people are saved, the first thing that they have is unity with other believers. Now, here at Liberty, it's important enough that we've taken steps to facilitate this. We've got multiple small groups every week. We've got... Uh, have a really robust Sunday school class. There are people getting together in their homes all of the time. I would strongly urge you to jump into one of these, and it'll show you where you stand. It'll show you whether I am not experiencing this or this is absolutely what I needed. This communion or fellowship is a mark of the Christian. That's why hospitality, which is absolutely dead and lost in our culture is so important to Christianity. This reason here. Okay, let's jump into the words, the lyrics, if you will. In verse 1, you, said, you see, behold how good and pleasant. Then verse 3, there's this weird thing. Or in verse 2, there's this weird thing about oil and a beard. Then verse 3, there's something about dew on a mountain. Unity is good, pleasant, and refreshing. So you've got the words good and pleasant there. They're similar, but 
we need to stop and look at them. Now, in Hebrew, in Hebrew literature, you find these kind of dual terms a lot. And what it does is it really opens up and it really shows you the same but different. And it gives you a, a lot clearer, more complex picture of it. So the words good and pleasant, they may seem similar, but they're different enough that we need to stop and take a look. Okay, so good. Good denotes what is healthy, what you need. In a word, good talks about what is necessary. So like your vitamins and your vegetables. Pleasant talks more about what comes after the vitamins and vegetables, the dessert, what is enjoyable. Good is more necessary and vital, but we'll tie the two together before the end. Good reminds me of the old story of the, uh, the hit and miss church attender. Um, and the pastor finally ran him down, went to his house, said, hey, they sat down around the fire. They said, what's the deal? You, sometimes you're here, sometimes you're not. You don't seem interested in growing. It's just kind of, he's like, ah, I don't really need all that stuff. It's just, he probably said that very condemning adage, me and, me and God have got a thing worked out which is an extremely dangerous place to be because what you and God have worked out is not what you think it is. There is something worked out, but it's not the thing you think it is. So the guy's sitting there and the preacher leans over with a stick and he starts messing with the fire and he pulls an ember out of the fire and he lets it sit in there. He says, what's going to happen to the ember? Well, it's going to go out. Why? Well, you pulled it out of the heat of the rest of the fire. That is the image of the Christian. Whenever that is, that is exactly what happens to the Christian who fails to build relationships and who fails to fellowship with other believers, who fails to get all the way in. Your heat for the things of the Lord will go grow cold, disappear, or prove to not be authentic in the first place. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 opens this concept up for us. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's a lot in this one verse. I'm going to break it down briefly. So neglecting to come together, is shown in contrast with encourage, in contrast with love and good works. Do you see that there? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Okay? Otherwise, you'd be neglecting to meet together. It's a habit, a bad one. Okay, so let's jump back to the opposite of neglecting to meet together. Instead of doing that, encourage one another. And then he adds that little clause at the end, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it shows us in this verse that neglecting to meet with fellow believers disregards the gravity of God's judgment. So the day drawing near, we know what that means. It's the final day of judgment. Everything comes, comes to a head. Everything comes to the end. 
so first of all, we see that neglecting to meet fellow believers disregards that. So saying that I don't need to exercise unity in the church of God with other believers, it's like saying God's not real enough and his judgment isn't coming. Failing to build spiritual relationships in the local church is to be unloved and unloving, uncared for and uncaring, discouraged and complacent. Basically, you have to come to the point to where you see this as either a big joke or as the most important thing in the world. You cannot, you can't ride the fence on that. It's extreme, it's very intellectually dishonest to ride the fence on that. What happens and goes on here is either the most important thing in the world or it's just a big joke. So that, there we see Christian fellowship is healthy and necessary for spiritual growth. Okay, so that's good. Now let's look at pleasant. Pleasant actually has more weight behind it to me, and I think it should to all of us. It, it's more convicting than good is. So what's good is not always pleasant, and what's pleasant is not always good. I personally despise broccoli. It is unpleasant. They tell me it's good for me, but I don't know. Shirley Brownie's got some good stuff in him too. But this psalm shows us where the two meet. So usually we feel guilty about not getting what we need. I'll eat my vegetables because I know I need them, and if I don't, I'll feel bad. Or I'll go to church because I know I should. That's pretty common thinking. But what should slap us in the face is that we don't find it pleasant because that reveals the core there. That reveals the core issue, whether or not it has become pleasant to you. We see it as a necessary chore, and for many people that's all that it is. But that's not completely the kind of pleasant that they're talking about here. Verse 3 fills out this idea. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. So if you want to know how your fellowship with other believers should feel, then think, think about it like this. How pleasant a cold glass of tea is on a hot day. How pleasant sleep is after a hard day of work. How pleasant it is to go out to a meal with your spouse. The reason this is convicting is because we don't see our, our, our fellowship as a refreshing necessity, like fresh dew on a mountain is what it's compared to. You see, it's both good, necessary, and pleasant. Now, we'll go to a friend to vent and gossip. We'll do stuff like that. We'll, we'll run to those kind of relationships, or we'll find some, some other way to make us feel better about ourselves. Rather than develop a relationship with other Christians... That points us back to the cross again and again. Relationships that we find as refreshing as a cold drink on a hot day or rest when you're tired. You can have that in the church with other Christians. That is what this context is for. As we go on in the, passion, uh, go on in the passage, we see that it's a luxury. Look at verse 2. It's like precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. 
even Aaron's beard. Now, I was told that what I should do with this passage for an object lesson is I should bring Frank up here and I should get a quart of Vams oil and dump it on his head. I was talking to Ricky. I think we decided that was the most expensive kind of oil. So, anyway, sadly, we can't do that because Frank's in the nursery. That's the only reason. That's the only reason. Okay, so what we've got here is an image of the high priest being anointed. Now, this is, it's odd to us, but the reader would have completely understood what it meant. In Exodus 30, Exodus chapter 30, verse 30, is where we, where we begin to understand that. Exodus 30, 30 says, You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. You shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Now, that is not the type of imagery that we like. It's very exclusive, and it's, it's weird to us. But whenever, whenever you put it in the context of unity, it's amazing the fact that he used that for his illustration of unity. This, this oil that was only supposed to be used on the high priest, he gave him the recipe for it, and he said, this is not for home use. It's not supposed to be put on just anybody. That's what this is. And this is where we find it in Psalm 133. So, the, the, the big thing that people would have thought of whenever they saw that, they, would have thought, they wouldn't have thought of, you know, like you're getting your clothes dirty or why in the world would you dump oil on your head? And like, it just sounds messy. They would have thought of, oh, he's talking about the special stuff. The word holy would have jumped into their minds. Holy oil that's to be used in the temple and for priests only. Only to be used to the ones who can go before God for the people of God. That's the metaphor here for godly unity. We should hear the psalmist here saying the unity and fellowship that you enjoy, it's not mundane, it's not normal. The unity that you enjoy is special, set apart. It is good, necessary. It is pleasant, enjoyable. And it is luxurious. It's rare. It's holy, set apart. You ever, I don't, but do you ever think about what goes on here with a bunch of pretty unimpressive people, run-of-the-mill, normal people, as holy? Now, one of the curses of our culture is that we're pretty unfazed by the holy and we don't think in those terms. We're ignorant infants when it comes to holy things. Now, we'll grasp at myths or feelings that are kind of loosely spiritual, but then we'll ignore the little deficiencies that malnourishments that pick a life apart. All the while, while we're neglecting the holy, luxurious, refreshing, nourishing unity that is ours in the church. Basically, we don't hold our unity as believers high enough. We don't realize that these simple little relationships that are built 
just because you've come to Christ are in fact part of God's holy work on the earth. And you look around in here, that is what it should represent. It's not that we're all amazing or that we're all super special, but the unity that this group of people has, according to this, is a holy thing, a special thing, a luxurious thing. So if you think about God's purpose on earth, like specifically what he is doing to glorify himself, his purpose is to bring together, to reconcile to himself the whole of creation. And then this desire for unity, this desire for unity, it's a reflection, one, of unity within the Godhead. So you've got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, perfectly unified. It's expressed in marriage. And then it's demonstrated in the church. Those are the three highest, the three highest demonstrations of biblical unity is the Trinity, marriage, and the church. That is just normal people who have been changed by the gospel. I cannot press on that enough. It is people that have been changed by the gospel. So then, to me, that brings up questions. If the fellowship of the believers is described as so holy, then how is it to be treated? Surely that sets a precedent for us. Well, I've got three ways. One, one way, whenever something is holy, it is to be revered. You should see it as something special, not just any other relationship. Your relationship with other Christians is to be revered. It's different from your other relationships. That means your brothers and sisters in Christ get preference. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Many times that's translated as preferring one another. That means that the very first place that you should reflect the love and humility of Christ is towards each other. And then that works its way out into the world. But the first benefactor, the very first benefactor of the fruit of the Spirit in you, the very first evidence of your salvation, of you being changed by the gospel, the people in the church benefit from that first. John 13, 34 through 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this... All people will know that you are disciples if you have love for one another. So in preferring each other first, in making other Christians around you the first benefactor of your salvation, that is how the world knows who you are and what you are and that you've been changed by it. And then it should be revered, then it should be protected. You should work to keep this unity from being damaged. We find this theme a lot in the Bible. So then we have to look and see, okay, so what damages it? What hinders unity? James 4, 1 through 2. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So if you want to condense all that together, what threatens Christian unity is shallow, materialistic, earthly desires that give no eternal satisfaction anyway. 
Simply put, this unity is threatened by a worldly mindset. The godly mindset says that my satisfaction is only found in Christ. The earthly mindset says I'll get what I want. And I want what I get. This mindset, listen, this mindset, once you get saved, is what begins to die in you. The mindset that, that says that me first, I'm going for what I need, for what I want, and I'm going to get it, is what dies in a person once they come to know Christ. So the same force that showed you your lostness in the first place is the same force that led you to Christ and the same force that kills the sin in you. And it only happens to regenerate believers, which is why our last one is it is reserved. It's exclusive. It's like the oil. Now, we don't like the sound of that, but the only group of people that will see this unity as good and pleasant anyway so we don't like the fact that it sounds exclusive, but look, it's naturally exclusive because the only people that are going to see it as good and pleasant anyway are those who have been lost and now found, like the people on the Coast Guard ship. The only people that are going to see this group is you are out there in the water with me and now we've been rescued. It's exclusive to those who have been lost and now found. That is the special VIP class of sinners that godly fellowship is reserved for. It's reserved for those that would take the journey to the temple. Those who are dedicated enough to have their lives changed by it and change their lives because of it. That's who this is for. And that's not just anyone. That is the fruit, the evidence of true Christianity is that it does change your life. It is not an attachment onto a life. It is the change of a life. It's not just an addition. Say, well, I put Jesus onto all of the other good stuff to do. I'm kind of, you know, punching my fire insurance card. So maybe it'll be okay. It is an entire life change. <clears throat> also, if you want to go further into the imagery here, this, this expensive oil usually is to be used sparingly. But here the imagery is drenching. So the unity that you find with fellow believers, it's refreshing, pleasant nourishing, luxurious, and it's abundant. My last point is unity is a blessing, not an accomplishment. This unity is a work of Christ in us. I found a quote, I, I can't remember who said it. It says, unity isn't the result of preaching on unity. It's the result of of people adoring and emulating Jesus. So you can talk about it in the pulpit until you're blue in the face, but until it's an authentic gospel lifestyle, then it's just an empty morality. You can't push it. You can't force people to do it. It has to come from a true, actual living life in the person. And all of this starts with Jesus. It all starts with the work of Jesus in the individual. Salvation is the result of the Spirit of God revealing the Son of God to someone. And then that works out into the group. Now what we accomplish as humans is the opposite. Isaiah 59.2 just really points at us. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins 
have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Do you remember Cain? What was his, fa his famous line? What, am I my brother's keeper? We'll drop someone as soon as their passions and desires come crossways with our passions and desires. It's what we do. Humans separate, take apart, divide. But what God does is reconciliation. Pull back together. God puts together. You remember the illustration of the, of the birds of a feather flocking together. It's not an uh, unusual thing to see a flock of geese together. But if you look out and you see a goose and a couple of ducks and a penguin and an ostrich, like something weird's going on there. That flock does not belong together. That's what the church is. God puts together. God is the, is the foundation, is, is the point of commonality. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So unity in the church, it's bigger than any commonality that you have with anybody else. It is an image. It is a reflection of the gospel. We're separated from God because of our sin. That same tendency to sin puts us at odds with others. But the work of God is to take what is broken and make it new. We are unified in the fact that we each saw ourselves as sinful and broken before God and went to Christ to get fixed. And what Christ did to fix us was to be ultimately broken in our place. The church is made up of those people. That means that the conclusions that you draw about each other are different. There's no room for they think they're better. We are here on account of how better we're not. We're less gooder than anybody else. That's why we're here. We are here on account of our brokenness. That's the reason you're in the room if you've come to know Christ. And the work that God has done in each one of us who have come to know him salvation, he's now doing corporately in the group. Joining together in common fellowship and dedication to our Savior. I want to encourage you, wade out into it, into the unity, into the fellowship, into the relationships. Don't waste these relationships. Don't make them shallow. There's no point in these relationships being shallow. Grow and mature together as friends, yes, but not just friends who happen to attend the same religious thing the same religious structure. Grow and mature together as friends who are commonly dedicated to the worship of our Savior. Now that's not everyone and that's not even everyone that's in here. Again, unity in the church, our unifying, our unifying factor is I was lost and I need Jesus. Me too. You too? I was a wreck without Jesus. I like the, uh, on Sunday mornings, we're doing the, um, 
Matt has been making everybody go around and give their testimonies. And it's, it's good for us. That is where the unity is. I admit, it's not comfortable. It's not pleasant, but it's good. And it forces you to sit down and see in each other. Oh, you, were, you were lost apart from Christ. And in that, if you have come to know Christ, you have a unity with other believers that you're not going to find at the bar, you're not going to find at school, you're not going to find anywhere else. An eternal fellowship. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that we would not waste this unity, this fellowship that we have been given, this luxury that you've abundantly poured out on us, God. I ask that here at Liberty that it would do its work, that it would shine through us, that we would grow, that we would mature together, that we would learn more of you, that the gospel would be at the center of our friendships, would be at the center of our worship, that we would be united in our dedication to the gospel, dedication to each other, and I ask that you would give us abundant fruit of the Spirit in each other, towards each other, for each other, and from each other. I ask that you would do this work in us so that you would be glorified and known to be God. In Christ's name, amen. Stand with me and sing.